Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. It's where we were last week, so hopefully your Bible is not in the same place and you are turning back to John chapter 12 and not just the last place you left it. John chapter 12. Have you ever met anyone famous? Have you ever hung out with somebody who is well-known, renowned, respected? Their name is on the minds of everybody that they come in contact. You ever met somebody super famous? I don't know that I have, but fame is such an interesting concept. It seems like a lot of people want to be famous. And even if you are sitting here going, you know, I'm not really all that interested in fame. It is so much a part of our culture that I think that a lot of us are influenced by the pursuit of fame or notoriety. We want to be known. We want to be respected. We want people to know who we are. Walk into a room and, and get the front seat or at least be acknowledged. Have people walk up and hug us and shake our hands and, and give us a fist bump. We want that kind of notoriety. Small town famous, big, international fame. Either way, we would like it. In surveys, it over and over, regardless of the generation, regardless of who is being surveyed, a vast majority of people are interested in um, being famous. For people between the ages of 35 and 45, roughly in that area, it's, uh, they said that fame and rich, being rich and famous, is a very high priority in their lives. One in two American adults say that they wouldn't mind being just a little bit more famous than they are right now. In fact, the surveys say that many people are willing to sacrifice relationships and their career in order to be famous. Fame is one of those things that really draws us, right? And again, I want to challenge you. You might be sitting there going, I don't really have any concern in me. I don't want to be well-known. I don't care if my name is in lights or on billboards or, or if I'm at award shows. I get that. I get that. And for many of us, we're past that stage of wanting that. Many of us are in that stage of wanting that. But I would say that within our hearts, there are times where we, where we show up to a peer function or where we show up to a group or, or somewhere where um, like, like our, our professional colleagues are at and we kind of want to walk into the room and, and be recognized as one of the people that we really know what's going on around here, right? I mean, that's just sort of this draw that pulls us all the time. That desire causes a lot of us and a lot of our, cult, our country and our culture to do things that are dangerous or not wise, especially in our social media age. TikTok has become synonymous with challenges in order to go viral, in order to be more well-known, in order to be known by others. These challenges that cause, honestly, young people or students to do things that are not smart. They're not wise. In fact, they're dangerous and people have died doing those sort of things. Unusual things. I know a guy who is a preacher and uh, he is now well-known for running a marathon every day. He's ran like, I don't know, like 200 marathons. And he's still running a marathon. Every single day, he runs a marathon. It has become part of his brand. It has become part of his identity. If you meet him, he will let you know that he ran a marathon that day. It is something that he is well-known for. 
which I think is kind of cool. I also cannot for the life of me understand why anybody would want to run a marathon every single day, right? But that's part of his identity. He has become well known in that area. So the question really does draw us to this consideration. Why do so many people want to be famous? Why, why is it a part of us? Now, listen, rich, I understand, okay? I get that. I know why everybody wants to be rich. That, that, that presumably makes life easier and you can afford things and that sort of stuff. But just being known, why? Not too long ago, we had a community forum talking about mental health and being aware of mental health issues and challenges that we are all facing. And the speaker, Andy Jung, reminded us that regardless of your generation, regardless of your age, your life stage, your circumstances, that all of us have this deep down desire to answer three questions. We wanna know who we are, identity. We wanna know which group we are a part of, belonging. And we wanna know what kind of impact we will make on this world, all of us. So teenagers flesh that out differently than those in their 30s, differently than those in their 70s. We are all always asking those three questions. And I would present to you and maybe even argue from the standpoint that our pursuit of fame is trying to answer those three questions. Who am I? Who accepts me? And what kind of difference am I making in this world? Jesus was famous. Jesus was very famous. Arguably, Jesus is still the most famous person who has ever walked on this planet. Last week in John chapter 12, right there at the beginning of the chapter that you're holding there in your hands, we talked about a dinner party in which all of the area, all of Jesus's friends, all packed into a house. Everybody who knew Jesus was there in that house. A lot of people came to see Lazarus, but even Lazarus, the man of the hour, the guy who was dead and is now alive, was sitting with Jesus. All of his friends, Jesus was the, the linchpin of that giant friend circle there. Everybody wanted to be around Jesus. And just the person caused people to react to who he is. Many people sit with him, some serve him, some sacrifice for the mission, and yet others make faith about themselves, turning their relationship with Jesus all about themselves. The very next day, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He leaves Bethany, he goes over there into Jerusalem. He's riding a colt. It's a day that we celebrate as Palm Sunday. It's a day that uh, we will celebrate the Sunday before Easter. And there in chapter 12, verse 12 through 19, Jesus goes on what we call the triumphal entry. He's on a donkey, on a young donkey or a, a young horse, a colt. And as he's going into Jerusalem, all of the travelers, all of the people, all the residents, it says, were laying down palm branches and their coats in front of Jesus's uh, donkey. And they were ascribing uh, him worth. They were praising him. They were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everyone in town knew who Jesus was. They all knew his name. They all knew that Jesus was coming into town. All his friends loved him. The town seemed to love him. Some of the religious leaders at the time, they got mad about this. They got upset because, you know, some people are always mad about something. And so they got upset about this and they start to grumble to themselves. They start to complain to themselves. And they say, this guy, everyone, the whole world is coming to see him. Everybody is coming to see this guy. And they were absolutely right. 
The very next story or episode there happens in verses 20 through 22. And it is an unusual note. The Bible says there that then the Greeks, there were Greeks that wanted to see Jesus. Super odd little note that's happening in the text. These are not what we would call Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews were Jewish people of uh, nationality, of culture, and yet they spoke Greek. So they had some of the Hellenistic culture, but they were still Jewish people with Jewish faith. This isn't Hellenistic Jews. These are Greek Greeks, all right? And they probably came from Greece and they were over here to, in Jerusalem to sort of uh, explore Judaism, to explore this faith. More than likely, the Greeks were there this group of friends was there when Jesus cleanses the temple. Y'all remember that story? You remember when Jesus walks in and he turns over the tables and he makes a whip and he, and he casts people out and he's mad at the doves and he hits the ox, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they cast them all out. He did that in a certain section of the temple that was only for those who were not Jews. So more than likely, the Greeks were saying that they saw this. They're exploring Judaism and then they see this Jew, this rabbi, throw this huge fit and clean the whole thing out. The next day they go up to Philip, probably, we call Philip the doubter, but Philip, they go to talk to Philip probably because he has a Greek name, all right? Philip is a Greek name. And these Greek speaking Greeks see this Jesus do something. They go up to Philip and they ask Philip, hey, can we see that guy? Can we, can we get a few minutes with him? He seems, seems famous, you know, would it be cool? We'll get his autograph or just learn more about him. And Philip goes to Andrew. You know why Philip goes to Andrew? Nobody does. He just does. And so Philip goes to Andrew and he asks Andrew and, and Philip and Andrew then go to Jesus and say, hey, there's some Greek guys. They, they want to meet you. And this causes Jesus to say Jesus things. All right. And I've said that this whole series. I love Jesus. I love him more than life. I love when he says things. It's just often when he says things, my first reaction is, um, what, you know? And that's what he says. Look at verse 23, he says this. Jesus replied to them. Now, is this them, Philip and Andrew? Is it Philip, Andrew and the Greeks? We don't know. Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the son of man. Remember, that's Jesus' favorite recognition of himself, for the son of man to be glorified. Jesus is approached by not only his friends, not only the people in the town, but international recognition. He is approached by them and he says, oh yeah, it's my time to shine. This is my time to shine. One commentator made this observation, which I think is really interesting. Something worth thinking about. At his birth, Gentiles from the East came to see Jesus. And right here at his death, Gentiles from the West come to see Jesus. As far as the East is to the West, Jesus is famous. The word there glorified is a major theme in the next couple of verses that we're going to look at. In the New Testament, in the Greek, the word is doxa, D-O-X-A, doxa. Could y'all say that? Say doxa. Doxa means to shine a light on. We might say in our common vernacular, we might say to spotlight. Jesus says, now is the time, it is the hour, this is my time for the spotlight to be shown on me. It's a really fascinating phrase. Number one, because why is he saying it? But number two, because of some of the words he uses, he says, the hour has come. Repeatedly in John, Jesus has used that phrase, the hour. He keeps saying the hour, the hour. But every time he says that, he said this, my hour has not yet come. 
He says it in chapter six. He says it in chapter seven. Most notably, he says it in chapter two. When Jesus' mama wanted him to get more wine for the wedding, and he looked at her and he said, woman, it's not my time. She said, don't care, get more wine. And she did that. I'm, I'm curious if any of you would look at your mama and tell her the next time she wants you to do something, or maybe your wife, the next time that she wants you to do something. You say, woman, it's not my time. I don't know that you'll survive that. Jesus did, but of course, he's the Messiah. And so, and you're not. At this point though, in all of John, it changes from my hour has not come to it's time. It's time for me to be spotlighted. What we literally have here is Jesus operating within his own fame, within his own notoriety, within his own um, reputation. And what Jesus does is he responds to that fame in a way that destroys every concept we have of fame. And he replaces it with, catch this, he replaces it with true identity, true community, and true mission. He says, none of that matters. Let me tell you who I am, who we are, and what I'm here to do. That's what we're gonna study today real quickly, but let's pray together before we open up Jesus's words. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the worship. God, the, the sweet sound of many people coming together to make much of you. God, I pray that, that you would be glorified in what we are doing, that we would shine a light on your son, Jesus, that everything we do, say, and sing today would shine a light on Jesus, that we would constantly live out the reality. We would live out the motto for their good, and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Let me read to you what Jesus says to these folks. He says, Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, spotlighted, the light to shine on him, living in that limelight. He says, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus responds in the context of his notoriety with what I would call these paradox. He responds in paradox. Now, a paradox is a noun. That's how you say it, paradox. It's a statement that seems to go against common sense but is still true. I'm gonna give you three paradox. I don't know the plural for paradox, so paradoxes or paradoxi. Either way, I'm gonna give you three of them, okay? And you need to write these down. You need to live by them. You need to learn them. This is what Jesus says as he responds to it. The first one, Jesus responds within his fame with a paradox. The first one is this, death is life. Death is life. He does so there in verse 24, he says, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit or life. He uses an illustration that all of us can get. He's just saying like, if you take a little seed and you bury it in the ground, then it will produce many millions more uh, fruits that will then have seed and, and then they will produce life. It's the death of the seed that produces life. 
My yard at my house is, is drowning, all right? The grass in my yard is dead. It drowned a long time ago. It is, this is now the fifth year of you guys telling me it never rains this much, and it just constantly never-ending raining in this place. And so I went and I bought some grass seed. And my hope is that what Jesus says is gloriously true about my yard as I lay out that grass seed, and hopefully it will die and produce many millions of blades of grass. We understand this. What Jesus is saying is that in his death, it will bring life. He's talking about himself. They are days away from him dying, from his murder. And he's pitching that. He's, he's sort of framing it out in a way that we would understand it, saying what they're about to experience will be one of the most gruesome, horrific, evil events in all of human history. And yet in reality, it will be good and it will be glorious in that it will bring life to other people. Later on in verse 32, Jesus mentions that he will be lifted up to allude to, to recognize that he is going to be crucified. His death will be horrible, and yet his death will yield life for others. In verse 28, he says in reference to his death that it will be for the glory of God, that this will be for God's glory, the glory of his name. What Jesus is saying there is that it is his time, it is now the hour for him to do what he came to do, what he was um, incarnated to do, what his purpose in this life would be. It is now his time. And in that, he would shine the light on the Father. That he would shine light. Everything that Jesus did in this life and in his death and in his, re- in his resurrection was to give glory, to shine the light, to honor the Father. This is his first paradox. He's already shared this paradox with other people, his other disciples, just a chapter before. In chapter 11, when Jesus is talking to Martha, that's Lazarus' brother, right before he resurrects him, Jesus says these words. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. For Jesus, death is just a necessary part toward living life, real life, satisfying life. It doesn't make sense to us. It is a paradox. It's upside down. It's not the way that we would explain it, but it is the way that it is. See, for us, fame is all about living your life to the fullest. Imagine that. Jesus is unbelievably popular. He could have lived from this point on in absolute luxury, living his life really to the fullest with everything that he wanted, with power and prestige and pleasure. Could have experienced all of that, and yet he doesn't. He chooses death because it is in self-sacrifice that Jesus finds or experiences true life and gives that life to others. That through his life. So the Bible teaches that when we acknowledge that sacrifice that he has made, we are dying to ourselves and that we are living in Christ. Baptism is that symbol that you would die to yourself and that you would be resurrected in Christ. Through death, we find life. The first paradox is death is life. The second is equally confusing. Losing is saving. The first one, death is life. The second one, losing is saving. He says that in John 12, 25, the one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life 
in this world will keep it for eternal life. Super confusing. It's the kind of thing that could go all kinds of bad ways. You could maybe think that Jesus tells us that we should hate this life, that we should not want to live this life. It doesn't really make sense when we start to think about that. I'll tell you one thing that it doesn't say. Jesus isn't saying that it is desirable or that it is good that you would want to die. Jesus isn't encouraging the idea that you would want to escape this life and its challenges and its problems by an early untimely death. That is not what Jesus is encouraging. And yet, of course, we know that sometimes some of us, some of those that we love can get into a spot where we start to feel that way, where we're sort of tempted in that way, where we start to have thoughts that the idea would be better, that if I was just to leave early, if I was to die, then it would be better for me or better for them or better for those. And that's not what Jesus is encouraging. That is not true. It is not true. And should you feel those feelings? Should you think those thoughts? We're here for you. I wanna talk to you. I wanna personally talk to you. I wanna, I wanna help you see that that's not the reality. That is not what they want. That is not what Jesus wants. Jesus is not encouraging the idea that we would hate this life so much to the point that we would desire death. What Jesus is doing is using purposely shocking words, paradoxical words. And I'm gonna say a bunch of words today that I'm not real sure are real words, but I'm gonna say them, I think you'll follow. Paradoxical words in which cause you to think. The point is not life and death, the point is hate and love. That they are these two far extremes. And Jesus is asking you to which one this life or the next one are you holding on to for dear life? To which one are you grasping a hold of? Earlier this week, during the midweek, um, that's our Wednesday night Bible studies. We have this theological study in which all of these theologians from our church gather together and we discuss some of the deeper, weightier things of the Bible. And this last week we discussed what's called ecclesiology or the study of the church. And one of the concepts there is what we call the local church, the local expression of God's family, of his people, and what we call the Catholic or the universal or the, uh, the global church, the timeless church, those two concepts. We asked them, which one is more prominent in your mind? And all the theologians discussed and we came up to the conclusion that most of us, the local expression of the church is much more prominent in our minds, not the universal church. Well, why would that be, we asked. And almost to a person, the answer was, because I can see it, because I can feel it, because it's where I am, because I, I know that it's this place. It has an address, it has a, it has a face, it has a people, it has a name. And that's true of so many aspects in our lives, that the things that we can see and touch and feel become so much more prominent in our lives. The life that you plan, the life that you organize, the life that you construct, the life that you can touch, the life that you live seems to be the most weighty thing. And what Jesus is saying is there is one that is for eternity. You ought to live this life with that one in mind, knowing that you exist from now to eternity. Your life is not just what you can feel and see and experience. This is the same idea of why it is that we often confuse sex with love, because one is an experience, one is pleasure, one is temporal, one is here, one is that we can feel, and the other one seems to be so hard to define. It's bigger, it's grander, and yet the other is much more important and powerful and 
strong. Jesus is not encouraging the, the hatred of the life that we live. He's encouraging the priority of the eternal life that we will all live. All of us could imagine, we could see the experience, maybe you felt this as a child or maybe you have raised a child to where you can imagine a child on the edge of a pool in the water, but holding on to the edge and a parent standing out in the middle of the pool, encouraging her to let loose, let loose to the wall and come out to me. You've got your little like water wings on. You're not, you're gonna be fine. It's all okay. You've got your little float around you. You will be fine. Let loose of the wall and come out to here. In fact, this is why you're in the water. Out here is swimming. Over there is not swimming yet. Let loose. And how hard it was for us, how hard it is for them to let loose of what they know to go out and experience what they don't know. This is what Jesus is saying. Losing is gaining. That's how you get this life, letting loose of what it is you think matters, of the temporal, of the superficial, of the pleasure. Let loose of that and understand that what you will then gain will be far, far, far better. For us, fame and notoriety, prestige, they all come with this idea of, of the temporal, the pleasure, that immediate um, sensation, that you walk up to an event and you don't have to stand in line. You don't even need a ticket. They just, they let you around the line, you know, because you're, you're known. You get this immediate recognition. And yet Jesus says, that's not what it's about. That's not what position is about. That's not even worth chasing, he says. The eternal life is worth chasing. Paradox one is, is death, is life. Paradox two is similar, but one step further, it's losing is saving or gaining. And yet there's one other upside down truth that Jesus teaches. And that is serving or service is honor. Life is death, losing is gaining. Service is honor. Service is honor. Look at this. Last verse we'll read together. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Three times the word service. This idea of sacrificing yourself for the good of others, putting the priority of other people in front of yourself. John Piper says that Jesus is not only our pardon, he is our pattern. It's not only what Jesus accomplished to save us, but it is his life that we are supposed to be living. We are to act like Jesus. And Jesus was a servant to all people. Look at Mark 9, 35. Sitting down, he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, famous, spotlighted, notable, if they want to be recognized and respected, then he must be last and servant of all. That is not the way that we expect it. That is not the way that we see it, that we are to live our lives expecting everyone else to be more important than ourselves. I'm not just saying this as a preacher or as a Christian. This is a true experience in my life. You want to know the thing that really killed off my road rage? Uh, I've never been the kind of person to like yell at somebody or, or to cut people off. But you know, like you, somebody does something on the road that is less than smart, and I think to myself mean thoughts about this person. I don't really express it, I just think it to myself. You think the same thing, you say, you are not very intelligent. You say that in different words, right? You say that and you think that. 
but the Bible teaches us to consider everyone else as more important than yourself. And so now, anytime anyone does anything on the road, I just think to myself, they must be much more important than me. They must be getting to somewhere more important than the place that I want to get to. And it has annihilated any sort of road rage in my life. This city is filled with people who are more important than myself. Constantly, everywhere, every turn lane, every roundabout, I run into people who are obviously more important than me and everybody else. Jesus wants us to live a life that considers other people as more important, that we would serve them. We would give them the right of way. We would always yield to the others. And then he says, such a huge phrase. This is the phrase that I think you could journal, that you could do your devotions on this week. This is the phrase that you could repeat to yourself as you're driving down the road. And the Father will honor, let's, let's say you. And the Father will honor you. The Father will honor you. Now, isn't honor what it is that we're chasing in the first place? When we're looking for fame and notoriety, isn't it honor that we want? To be recognized and valued, to be included, to be thought of as important, to be notable. This is why we crave what we want. This is why we tailor our social media and protect our reputation. It's why we let others know when we accomplish something worthwhile. We want to be honored. And this is what Jesus says is available to you. There is a path within Christianity in which you would be honored and included and thought of and considered as important. There is a path that will, will give that to you. And it's not just honor from anybody. It's not just honor from the nameless masses. It's not just honor from the thousands of Twitter followers or Instagram followers or Facebook friends. This is honor from the Father. Now, Jesus doesn't say, and he could have, and then my Father will honor you, which is accurate. Jesus doesn't call him the king or the sovereign, the creator, the Lord, the almighty, or the holy one. All of those would be true. And all of those would be notable. What, what a great honor to be recognized by the king. What an amazing privilege to be recognized by the creator. But what Jesus emphasizes here is that the father, your father, your dad will honor you. Your good, good father will honor you. When you die to yourself, let loose of the things that don't matter and serve others as, they're as though they are more important to you, your father will be honored by that. If God is our father, then I am his son, and you are his son, and you are his daughter, and we are brother and sister. We are family. Jesus is our brother. Do you recognize what Jesus is saying here? What Jesus is promising, what he's exposing here, that this pursuit of fame, this pursuit of being known, this innate desire within our culture and apparently their culture as well is to, to be recognized, to have an identity and a belonging and a purpose. Jesus says, it's, you got it all upside down. You got it all upside down. Death, dying to yourself is actually true life. 
Letting loose of things that don't matter is actually grasping a hold of things that do matter. And serving other people is the quickest and the best and the only way to be recognized and loved and and to be accepted by the Father. In other words, what he's saying is, you are, listen to me, this is what Jesus says, you are a child of the King. You have a family. You belong with us. You are part of us. We are family. And you are making a huge impact in the world just by serving those who are in front of you. Three paradoxes Jesus shares here. Death is life. Losing is saving. Serving is honor. I told you at the beginning that doxa means glory, or we translate it as glory. It means to shine a light on. Maybe you've heard the phrase of a, of a doxology, right? You might sing a song. There's this really old song that we always end our church conferences with. It's, it's called doxology and it's praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? You can sing it. You can hear it. Doxology is not just the title of that song. It's a certain way in which we praise God. There's many doxologies. That's just the one that's most noto- notable, the one most famous, is that doxology. It means to praise God. And so from this text, what I want to encourage you to do is to live your life as a paradoxology, an upside down way that those looking on, it just doesn't make sense. Why would a group of talented, diverse and connected and and united, smart people Why would they live their lives constantly sacrificing for the good of others? Why would they do this? Why? Because it glorifies our Father in heaven. Because it shines a spotlight on what Jesus did and what God wants to do. Live your life as a paradoxology. Next to my bed is a a phone charger. It's it's one of those little three-in-one deals. I can connect my phone there like the MagSafe thing. It'll stay there. And then my watch sits on this thing. And then my AirPods, they, they go down here and, and all three of them will charge there at night and they go dark. And I leave them there because it is my alarm clock. I don't use the alarm because that will scare the religion out of you every morning. I use um, through the health app. If you have an, an Apple device, then there's this health app. And I don't use that to track calories or run or anything productive like that. I use that as an alarm clock. They have a sleep schedule feature in there. And if you set that sleep schedule, then what happens is very interesting. It's, it's different. You can choose things, not like You can choose nice little melodies to wake you up. And so I choose that, all right? I choose life, all right? I choose that. Another cool little feature about it is that, like I said, my phone's there, my watch is there. Both of them are completely black all night long until five minutes before I wake up. Five minutes before my schedule is set to um, turn on. And at that five minute mark, my watch will light up very dimly, just really dim. It lights up and for the next five minutes, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And almost always, nearly every morning, including this morning, I lay there um, because it's the light that normally will wake me up. So I just quietly lay there and watch this thing get brighter and brighter. I watch my watch. It has little seconds there. And I'll do that whole little thing where I take long blinks, you know? And then I'll open my eyes and I'll look at the time and I'll say, it's not time to wake up yet. 
And I open my eyes, it's not time to wake up yet. And it can be two minutes until it's time to wake up, but I'm not getting out of bed for two reasons. Number one, I'm a very disciplined person and it is not yet time to get out of bed. Number two, I just want two more minutes of sitting here, right? They're equally true. And I'll look at that thing until it says 5.59, one minute before I get up in the morning. And I'll reach out my hand as that clock, as my watch is blinking down. It's as bright as it's going to be. My phone is right here. I'll reach out with my first knuckle. This is an incredibly detailed story. I will reach out with my first knuckle. And right there at six o'clock, my watch goes black, my phone lights up, and there's like a split second between it lighting up and it going into the melody. You know, like that? So I reach out and right when it lights up, I push the button to turn it off before it even makes a sound. I don't want any sound. I don't like sounds in the morning, you know? And I wanna wake up Jackie, all soft and sweet. It's like, it's time to wake up. You want some coffee? I ask her that every morning. Like she's there, she's never once said no. Do you want some coffee? It's time to wake up. Jesus says repeatedly over and over in John, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. And yet in this passage, he says, now, now it's time. It's time to wake up. And I'm curious, I'm wondering if some of you university students, some of you retired empty nesters, those of you who are raising young families, I'm wondering if it's time for you to live your life like a paradoxology, flip the whole thing on its head, serve other people, live like eternity matters, die to yourself because it's the only way to find life. My friend, it is time to wake up. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.